All right. We'd like to say good morning, good morning, good morning, good morning. This is Church Information and Open Forum right here in Dallas, Texas. Yes, this. And we'd like to say good morning one more time to you. We are here from 7 to 9 a.m. My name is Marianne Barnett. And uh, we got a lot of things going on, a lot of things. Good information to bring you this morning. And I want you to listen carefully because it's very important. It's concerning your health. Concerning your health. Uh, And we want you to listen because we want all of our listeners, everyone, to be in good, great health. Yes, good, great health. Uh, and right now is our uh, is uh, our guest on the line. Yes, is our guest on the line. Like to say good morning to Miss Amy Cunningham, Director of Clinical Innovations and Equity. All right, Miss Cunningham, are you there? I'm here. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Yes, could you uh, describe your organization and uh, how y'all got started? Sure. So I am from NITSA, that stands for the North Texas Behavioral Health Authority. Uh And we see developing an entire, really a collaborative system of care for individuals experiencing mental health and or substance use issues as our primary purpose. Mm -hmm. So we go out, we form partnerships with all the stakeholders in the delivery of mental health and substance use disorder services, really to enhance the health of the entire community. And uh, geographically, our community encompasses Dallas, Ellis, Hunt, Kaufman, Navarro, and Rockwall counties. Mm -hmm. But our system is committed to providing high-quality, person-centered behavioral health services regardless of a person's uh, place of residence, lack of residence, or their ability to pay for those services. Mm -hmm. So uh, the services are free? They can be, yes. All right. If that's that's what someone needs, yes. If it's something someone needs. uh, If, yes. If they're in need and they don't have a way to pay on their own, then we will make sure they get the services they need. Mm-hmm. Well, how long have y'all uh, been in business? Well, we've been operating for a very long time, but since uh, about twenty end of 2016 is when we really took over the authority position in our catchment area. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, are there late, wage... Uh, uh, Concerns there if they're making a certain uh, amount of money to uh, in order to enter your program or something like that? No, there's no cost at all. Um, people can reach out to us, or we do a lot of outreach actually. Mm-hmm. The assistance we provide directly at NISA includes um, outreach screening, assessment, and referrals specifically for substance use treatment. Mm-hmm. And then we also do a lot of care coordination to connect people with available community resources and services. Mm -hmm. Um, For organizations, we provide mental health first aid training, which really is to let um, 
kind of lay people know what to do in a mental health crisis. We also assist with housing, uh, prescription coverage, mm-hmm. and getting people enrolled within any benefit programs for which they might qualify, like Medicare or Medicaid or Social Security disability income. We help people apply for all of those. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also have a team of community health workers who all have lived experience with mental illness or substance use disorders or both. Um, And those experiences help them connect with individuals as they do outreach. So we're not just waiting for people to seek out services or be referred to us. We're going out into the community every day and letting people know about what assistance is available to them. Mm -hmm. And also we're available whenever people need via our crisis line. Uh, which is 866-260-8000. All right. Would you say that again? Someone properly. Absolutely. Yeah. I'll give people a couple seconds to grab a pen, hopefully, and they can keep it in an important place. Mm-hmm. It's 866-260-8000. All right. Now, are y'all funded by the government? Yes. You're funded by the government. And, uh, uh, do you uh, are there any just gifts that come from the general public that might yeah be, we can accept that yes mm-hmm well now your your patients uh, you say they uh, if they uh, they can't afford health care mm-hmm. y'all will give it to them free that's right now uh do you say y'all will come and pick them up if they can't afford transportation uh, to a way? Yeah. Well, uh, we do some of that. We have peer providers who can provide transportation. We also have very high intensity services called assertive community treatment programs. Yeah. And those, they'll have a dedicated case manager uh, mm-hmm. who only keeps about ideally 10 or 12 people on their caseload mm-hmm. and those case managers part of what they can help with is transportation to and from appointments or you know where where the people need to go do y'all use regular doctor's offices and uh hospital do y'all use hospitals or what we partner with local hospitals uh we have people embedded at parkland mm-hmm. and uh we also have people embedded in 911 so that if there is a mental health emergency, we can start coordinating care from the beginning. Mm-hmm. What, what, what general area is some of your more busiest areas that y'all get more patients from? The busier ones? I would say um, it, it depends. I would say kind of that South Central Dallas is an is a area where um, there's a lot of need. That's where the right care program that we have partnered with um, kind of originated its pilot because they identified a lot of need in that area mm-hmm. um, right care is a, a partnership with you know fire EMT uh, and care coordinators or, or uh, social workers so that mental health 911 calls in mm-hmm. that area it has six since expanded since its first pilot year, but um, they respond to those mental health coded 911 calls mm-hmm. in a way that is 
uh, maybe less intimidating or less scary for people having a mental health crisis than um, police coming on their own to respond to those. So there's a specific, you know, uh, a social worker who's going to work with those people to de-escalate, hopefully, and get them connected with services, and then also specially trained um, EMTs and uh, police officers who go out as a team. Well, are you saying that it might be better to call y'all rather than call the police when a person is maybe having a, a, a challenge there and he go, they go off their rockers, what we would call. Mm-hmm. It would be better to call y'all. I think either. Whatever makes the most sense for that situation. Mm-hmm. And I would, it, just in my, you know, professional opinion, I would try to gauge it on um, the level of danger to self or others, right? Mm-hmm. So if there's imminent danger, then mm-hmm. um, 911 is probably your best bet, right? Mm-hmm. If it is um, someone who might be contemplating something but not there to the point of action yet, then I would you know, do the mental health crisis line and they will uh, send people out. We have mobile units who can go out and address crises. What if there's no weapon or anything seemingly involved in this situation? Right. Uh, if and, there's uh, not, that, that definitely, I think, would, would constitute like an imminent threat, threat right? So mm-hmm. if there's no weapon or no, you know, specific risk or danger that, mm-hmm. that the, the person assisting can identify, then I would definitely do the 866-268-8000 number. And just, you know, I, you're going to get help either way. Um, so you know, just kind of use your best judgment in that situation as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Now, what about uh, hospitals? You say you have some mm-hmm. uh, in, in care at Parkland? We have people, care coordinators, who are embedded at Parkland um, and the um, emergency unit there. And so we work very closely with Parkland, but we also have, uh, you know, partnerships and, and good relationships with numerous other hospitals in the area. Who are some of these hospitals do you have? Well, like Dallas mm-hmm. Behavioral Hospital is one. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we can find, you know, there's Carroll State Hospital um, for, you know, longer term stays. So... There are many options for people who are needing inpatient care as well. It's Mm. not something that we directly provide, but we can coordinate and assist people um, in getting that that level of care if they need it. All right. Uh, Do do y'all work with doctors who are already employed and have their offices open, say, in South Dallas or South Oak Cliff or areas like that? Yeah, we have, we partner with provider agency, right? Mm-hmm. And so they would employ a psychiatrist uh, to provide the mental health services. Mm-hmm. What about the, uh, the physical health of a person? That's something that we're working toward integrating that. We can always connect and assist people with that mm-hmm. um, and get them to those appointments, you know, if they have that level of service and of, of need. Uh, but as it 
expands right now where our focus is behavioral health, you know, meaning the mental health and substance use treatment, um, but recognizing that physical health is important, you know, in that. And we really attempt to treat people holistically, right? Yeah. So what? we understand, and also people who suffer with mental illness and substance use disorders have a higher risk mm-hmm. of physical health problems. So we are, you know, conscious of that, and as we're working with people, understand um, how important it is that they get their physical health needs met as well. Yes. Now, which one was would be the the most mentally ill people now are physically ill? Well, I, I've been wondering because seemingly it used to be more physically ill people now, but there's so many mentally ill people seem to be, mm-hmm. be popping up. What's going on? Yeah. yeah, what's going on? Well, yeah, I think a lot of it we've seen has to do with the impact of COVID-19 and that we're still, you know, kind of reeling from that. Um, you know, one of the things, one of the, the symptoms, I would say, of mental illness, specifically, you know, depression and things like that, is isolation, And we were all kind of forced into isolation, right, with the lockdown. Mm -hmm. And um, that wasn't wasn't good for a lot of people's mental health. And I think another thing contributing to that is that maybe we're hearing more about it because there's less shame around it. Uh You know, Uh Um, in my mind, the most important thing to discuss and really to combat when it comes to substance use disorders and mental illness too, is stigma. And the assumptions people make or too often make about those struggling with addiction and mental health concerns. Mm -hmm. And neither of those is a weakness, neither is a character flaw. You know, mental illness and substance use disorders are not the fault Mm-hmm. of the sufferer and there's no reason for shame to be associated with either of those and I think our society is slowly uh, too slowly but but making some progress coming around to the idea that this is something that's okay to talk about and okay to get help with yes uh, that seems to be such a problem because the one thing people w- w- would not want to be called it's crazy. Yeah. But you can go back a few years. That's a person that was seeing a psychiatrist. Uh, if the word got out uh, in certain communities, the word that they would automatically be considered crazy. Uh, yeah, they and, were labeled. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it was just uh, a situation where nobody would want to, anyone to know that they are receiving uh, service or help from a psychologist or a psychiatrist. Right. Do y'all have a psychologist uh, and, you know, people who work in mental health? Do do y'all have uh, uh, many of those working? Psychologists? Yeah. Or psychiatrists? Yep. Yep, definitely. We have those available for everybody and nurse practitioners who can prescribe medications as well. Mm-hmm. We also have at our provider agencies therapists who can do more of the talk therapy and counseling. 
and mm-hmm. then social workers and case managers as well. Well, when would a, when would you consider a person uh, mentally deranged that, that really should use your service? I think that the way that I look at it um, is that if the person is bothered by it, then they need to get help. You know, if um, if it's interfering with their basic life functioning, you know, at school or at work or in relationships at home, you know, if it's interfering with those things, then seek assistance. Mm-hmm. Uh, are you a psychologist or a psychiatrist? I am a licensed professional counselor and licensed marriage and family therapist. Well, it seems to be a... a very heavily leaning toward a family thing now because usually mm-hmm. when you hear when it makes television or radio uh, it's somebody almost want to kill seem to want to kill the whole family uh, mm-hmm. what did that come from? Well I think a lot of um, it's I am thinking in my the first thing that pops into my mind is that we we mistreat the people who are closest to us right? Mm -hmm. Because we feel comfortable. Um, You know, there's that old adage about that. But I think that um, family is so impacted by the mental health of any of its members, Mm -hmm. right? We, um, one of the things that, you know, we were going to talk about, I think, were social issues related to substance abuse, right? And I really think it depends on if you mean social issues caused by substance abuse or social issues that might lead people to misuse substances, right? Mm-hmm. And the impact of substance use is tragically far-reaching. Um, it extends you know, far, far beyond the struggling individual. Families mm-hmm. and loved ones are often devastated by it, and there's an immense emotional and financial it's, burden. Yeah, it seems they hurt the one... They love the most. It just mm-hmm. I'm up, uh, up against a short break right now, and if any of you'd like to speak with uh, Miss Amy Cunningham, she's director of clinical innovation and equity with the organization North Texas Behavior Health Authority. You can give her a call at two one four. I know. I'm sorry. Nine seven two six four seven one eight nine three, and we'll be. Right back. Yeah, what's up? I'm All right, we're back. A segment with Miss Amy Cunningham, Director of the Clinical Innovations and Equity Organization, North Texas Behavior Health Authorities. The mission is providing assistance to substance abuse victims. Oh, my goodness. Y'all provide service for a substance abuse victims? Y'all do that too? Well, substance use disorder, you know, people struggling with that, certainly mm-hmm. their families, you know, and their uh, support systems, mm-hmm. and then also anybody struggling either at the same time or, you know, separately with mental health issues. Well, we are hearing so much about this this new stuff, these pills, 
and children mm-hmm. are seem to getting uh, getting off on this stuff. Very bad. It's striking, striking in communities by the dozens and dozens of, of young children. Mm-hmm. Some of them hadn't even reached teenage years yet. Uh, they are, and, and y'all deal with this uh, yourselves. Yes. Well, there's a program within our system um, called Safety Net, uh-huh. and they actually go into the schools, and it's an early prevention program. Mm-hmm. So they start with that education, you know, um, as early as possible to wow. try to prevent that. Mm-hmm. You know, but then also, of course, we would um, we would you know wrap around and assist the the person using the substance as well as their families and, like I said, their, their social support system. Yes. And yeah. include them in the, the treatment. Yes. Uh, you can reach me at 972-647-1893. Uh, bring us one on, uh, Pierre. Uh, yeah, we have Leon on the line one. Leon, okay. Good morning, Leon. You're on with uh, Miss uh, Amy Cunningham. All right. Good morning. Uh, good morning, Real Marnette. Good morning. Good morning, Ms. Cunningham. Good morning. Uh, Ms. Cunningham, can you uh, talk about uh, the effects of stress on mental health? Yeah. So, absolutely. So, there is um, something called the stress vulnerability model, right? And anytime we are under increased stress, it increases our vulnerability to symptoms of mental health disorders. So all it does would would exacerbate, you know, and make us more um, susceptible to mental health struggles. And uh, are there communities, from your perspective, where uh, there's more of an impact from stress than others? Or is that quantifiable? Is there a, are there statistics to show that certain communities suffer more from stress than others? I think certainly um, any community that is, you know, from a socioeconomic perspective, um, less privileged or, um, you know, the impact of everything is magnified there. Um, you know, I mentioned earlier the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. You know, if you're already, you know, struggling to make ends meet and then you lose your job or you can't go to your job because you're sick or a family member is sick or, you know, your uh, restaurant is temporarily closed down by the city and you can't, you know, make the income that you were. I mean, that is astronomically more impactful and stressful than to someone who just needs to make the switch to work from home, you know? So those, those communities that are um, already struggling financially, I think, are more at risk. Uh, what are some of the signs that uh, the general public should look for to tell that a person may be having uh, a mental health uh, crisis or may be potentially uh, able to have a mental, uh, capable, excuse me, <clears throat> of having a mental health crisis. 
Mm-hmm. I would look for any, you know, just generally any changes in their behavior. You know, if they're not acting like themselves, um, if they're isolating and not wanting to interact with other people, that's another sign. Um, I think any of those things that you're that you're seeing that cause concern or raise a red flag or anything like that, that we need to have the courage to ask questions and talk to the people we care about um, and ask if they're okay. And then if they're not, you know, if, if we can make them feel psychologically safe, you know, to share what's going on with us, then we can reach out to places like NITFA and like our provider agencies and get them engaged in receiving professional help. Okay. Now, uh, what the general public, is there a number for the general public to call you and get in contact with you and, and tell you about people that they suspect might be having a problem, uh, you know, with their mental health? We can be reached, um, we have a local number, 214-366-9407. And then we also have a toll-free number, 877-653-6363. And I can repeat both of them. Please do. Okay, locally, Mm -hmm. 214-366. Nine four zero seven, and then the toll free number is eight seven seven six five three six three six three. All right. Now we also could be emailed if anybody would prefer that info at nitva dot org. Okay, that's good. That's good. Do you work with uh, the religious community when it comes we to have- things like this? Yes, absolutely. We have done, in the past couple of years, um, a lot of safe trainings through our DEI um, initiative. And Mm -hmm. SAFE stands for uh, Spirituality and Faith Empowers, Mm -hmm. right? So we, we, that really is a training where faith leaders and mental health professionals come together to recognize the importance of working in partnership for congregants, right? Um, A lot of the time, there's misunderstanding in the faith community about mental health. And then also there's trepidation, right? Or or nervousness on the part of mental health professionals in getting into faith or religion or spirituality. Um, So what we do in order to invite that, I think, into therapy sessions or discussions with psychiatrists or psychologists is to ask people on a strengths assessment, you know, kind of what what role does spirituality or religion play in their lives? And then that gives them the opportunity um, to bring it up, right? And let us know that their religion is a strength for them, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so then we can encourage that and utilize it in their recovery. And actually, we have a, a strategic outreach coordinator mm-hmm. position at NITBA, and one of the things that she does is interact with communities of all faiths. Mm-hmm. Um, 
actually tomorrow morning, uh, she's going to be contributing to a conversation on the topic of substance abuse at Hamilton Park United Methodist Church. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is under the leadership of Dr. Sharon Patterson. The event is open to the public and it starts at nine at, at 10 o'clock. Mm-hmm. Well, now, let me ask something I've often wondered about uh, in psychology and our psychiatrists. Do y'all run into anything to tell the difference, uh, if there are, y'all believe there's a difference, between mental health from uh, one place or demon possession on another? Mm-hmm. I think from a mental health perspective, we would treat all of that as a mental health issue, right? If someone is experiencing psychosis, right, um, then we can, you know, uh, assess that person and address that with different psychotropic medications and those kinds of things. Um, And we would treat everything that way. You would treat everything that way. You wouldn't uh, treat it as a spiritual problem that might be uh, happening in the mind of an individual Mm -hmm. rather than a physical problem? Right. One of the things that's that's really important from our perspective is person-centered care, right? Mm -hmm. What that means is that the individual in services and their families are contributing to what we're working on, how we're approaching it, you know, what medications they uh, use. They can work with the psychiatrist to figure that out. Um, The goals that we're setting for their treatment come from them. You know, we're not um, enforcing any of our ideas, you know, on them. We're just kind of guiding and assisting along the way toward what they identify as their goals, right? So if the family and the individual have that belief and, you know, want to explore that as a possibility, we wouldn't stand in the way of that, but we wouldn't, you know, it wouldn't come from us that that's something they should look into. Uh And uh, when we look at our situations like that, uh, I've seen people cured in, in a matter of seconds. Mm. They have been just what we say mentally un- unstable for I don't know mm-hmm. and get cured in seconds. And religious leaders would say, well, we cast a demon out. Uh, uh, what, what do y'all have to say about that? What do you think on that? Well, I can speak for my for per, for me personally. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't um, I don't disbelieve in miracles, right? I don't um, think that things like that are certainly possible. Uh, it's just not within you know our professional scope. Mm-hmm. You, y'all don't do with deal with the spiritual side, basically. Physical. Well, we use it. Yeah, we use it as a as a strength. For people, right? Mm-hmm. If it's something that they can draw on along their recovery process, mm-hmm. then we will encourage them to do that. We will, you know, assist them with um, finding places to do that and people to do that with. 
you know? Uh-huh. Um, but it isn't, like I said, it's not really within our professional scope to focus there. But we will identify if that's a strength for people within our services and um, encourage them to utilize that strength. All right. Well, what about babies that are born uh, to mothers that have been abusing drugs? How how is that dealt with? Y'all deal with it. Do y'all deal with situations like that? Well, we can involve if we're deal, if we're working with the family, and um, we had something like that. We can always involve CPS and file those reports either anonymously or work in conjunction with them to get the family that assistance. Uh-huh. But we don't um, we don't treat children that young. Like we don't do you know neonatal type le- level treatment. Oh, okay. You uh, you deal with the, about what age do you start dealing with people? I think about three is the youngest that that our providers start accepting clients. That's good. That's good. Mm-hmm. About three years old, and when we see take take child abuse, uh, I I'm sure a lot of mental problems come out of that. How do y'all deal with those situations? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so that's a, a lifespan issue, right? Mm-hmm. So there are children, you know, in those abusive situations in the moment, right? Mm-hmm. And we might be working with the children and with those families. In those circumstances, we are required to report that to Child Protective Services so that they can start an investigation. Mm-hmm. And so that is how we would, you know, deal with whether the child needs to be taken from the home. Uh, we would let, we let CPS, you know, handle that determination, mm-hmm. but we report and we assist as much as we can. Mm-hmm. If it is a, a situation where the person is now an adult, right, mm-hmm. but they, they were abused as children because that has a lifelong impact on people mm-hmm. and we certainly you know treat uh, and connect to care adults who are victims you know of that or survivors of that I should say mm-hmm. um, every day and so whatever however that impact of abuse is manifesting in their adulthood however it's presenting or whatever problems it's causing we will address those All right. and then go ahead no, you go ahead. I was only going to ask about senior citizens being mm-hmm. uh, abused mm-hmm. and things like that. And when we see senior citizens abused like that, why would we uh, uh, not? Uh, are they on the front burner? That's really what I want to ask mm-hmm. you. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, looking at senior citizens. Yes, so there's Child Protective Services and there's Adult Protective Services, right? Mm-hmm. And we would report any kind of signs of abuse. And we don't have to have proof of abuse as mental health professionals. We just have to have suspicion of the abuse, right? Mm-hmm. And so then we make the report either to Child Protective Services or Adult Protective Services based on the age of the person we're working with. Mm-hmm. And then those agencies are the ones that do the actual investigating 
and carry out any kind of uh, solution, you know, to the problem. Uh-huh. Well, what is, uh, does loneliness contribute to mental health? I think so, yes. We've talked about, we touched on it a couple of times, I think, with the, um, you know, the isolation during lockdown in co- during COVID-19, and then also that being a, kind of a signal to people around a person that they might be uh, experiencing a mental health issue. Mm-hmm. Because we, you know, it's that stigma again, it's mm-hmm. that shame. We want to hide problems from mm-hmm. each other. We don't want to. And then also if someone is, de- is depressed, right, clinically depressed, they don't have the motivation to go out and interact with people, you know, that mm-hmm. might be just more than they can imagine um, having the energy or the willingness to do. So, so we're always, um, I think, healthier with uh, social interaction, you know, right. and that's to varying degrees, right? Some people are introverted, some people are extroverted, so we, we need to know ourselves and know how much social interaction is the right amount for us. Um, But isolation and that resulting loneliness, I think definitely can contribute to mental health concerns. Good, good. I tell you what, we're up against a short break and y'all can call me at 972-647-1893 and talk with Miss Amy Cunningham and uh, we'll be right back and I will the ones who are hanging on the line I'll take your calls after this break yeah what's up it's, I'm gonna kick it with the line y'all know here we go like I promised you're on with Miss Amy Cunningham I promise you I would start taking calls as soon as we get back alright Pierre who do we have so we have uh, Imani on uh, line 3 Imani on line three. All righty. Good morning, Imani. Hey, Pastor, how you doing? Fine. How are you? Enjoyed your message, Sunday. Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you, very much. You're you're very you're you're a good man. This in this struggle, and believe me, well, sometimes I wonder why people in this struggle that we have. More of us don't go crazy. I really be honest with you about it. All right. You have a question for Miss Cunningham? Yes, I do. Not only mm-hmm. that, I want to uh, thank you for being on the show, ma'am. But uh, oh. uh, I'm with the, uh, the pastors on it too. Spiritually, we have to do it, and that's why I think take it. We're moving in. We'll be in Houston pretty soon. Powernomics Think Tank. Powernomics uh, Think Tank will be in Houston, and we have many, many doctors. I mean, uh, PhDs, all kind of medical doctors, all kind of dentists, all kind of doctors. Okay, uh, 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 went to school doctors, and we 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 well, we're working on the main problem in our community is we realize that it's poverty, and that's why we mm-hmm. we forcing it, we we forcing the reparations movement right now. We have a bill, but also we we begging that the churches, if we every, every if all the churches on to every corner in our community along with the funeral homes would open up 
like that everything else is open, like the liquor stores, the casinos, the bars, and the alcohol establishments would open up. I think we could solve a lot of our problems, but the churches will stay closed until Sunday to get the money, and they don't do anything. So I've been on a lot of boards with a juvenile. I was on the juvenile board, Annie Casey Foundation board. I was on the African American Advisory Committee and fam. A lot of, I don't want to brag, but our biggest problem right now, ma'am, I understand what you're doing and, and you went to school for it, but we need poverty is our number one problem. And that's what we think talking about now. We could solve a lot of our problems with if opening up these churches, buildings, and, and, and do that. What do you think about that if we open up all the churches 24-7 like the casinos? What do you think? I think that, you know, any any space that can provide support and, you know, a loving uh, embrace, you know, it, not a literal, but, you know, a loving embrace for people and support them in their times of need is helpful, you know, for people struggling with mental illness and substance use. So... If, you know, if any church or, or building would would want to do that, feel compelled to do that, I think it would be helpful. Would you be willing to come into these churches and, 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 and educate us on, on what you're talking about? Like I said, I was on the Dallas Juvenile Board, and I was also on any, uh, the board uh, with uh, the, 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 when they take the children from the parents, what they call it, uh, CPS? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah, Child Protective Services, CPS. So we, yes, absolutely. We will come in and talk to and educate and share, you know, what we're doing uh, with anyone who will have us, really. Like I mentioned before, our strategic outreach coordinator is specifically tasked with partnering uh, with faith communities. And so if um, I can give my, uh, you know, work number and my email address, um, if anybody wants to get in contact specifically about that kind of thing um, or mental health first aid training, anything like that, so that people can be um, more equipped and have more, you know, I think knowledge is empowerment, right? So if they can learn more about what's going on and battle that stigma and maybe we can inspire people to do, you know, to kind of realize that dream you have. All righty. We thank you for your call and comment. That clears the line, 972-647-1893. Who do you have next, uh, uh, Pierre? Malcolm Robinson is on line one. Malcolm, all righty. Good morning, Barrister. Hi, how are you doing? Fine. How are you this morning? Fine. You have a, a good show and a good guest. Mm, thank you. Good mm-hmm. And I have really, uh, okay. I have two questions, but I think you only going to allow me to ask one. Go right here. Okay. Mm-hmm. My, my question is, this is in regards to African-American males on a young male. It seems that the pressure, I don't know if you have noticed this, but mm-hmm. this is my expression of it. Mm-hmm. The pressure, extra pressure and stress of being an African-American male, does it have some impact on development of mental illness or what appears to be mental illness in young African-American males. Just the regular stress mm-hmm. of being an African-American and the racism that African-American males have to go through at a younger age. Mm-hmm. So if you have a 
a son or a, a young male who's coming up through life, it seems to me that there are more and more younger African-American males that are subject to mental illness. I don't know if you noticed that. Then we have to deal with the issue of getting treatment for them versus dealing with law enforcement who add extra problems to the whole process. Have you noticed in terms of the growth and development of African-Americans and the pressure of being an African-American male, how they subject them to more mental problems? Mm-hmm. That's an excellent point, and you're, I think you're spot on. Um, unfortunately and tragically, the suicide rate among young African-American males is increasing, right? Um, and increasing at an alarming rate. And it's something that we at NITBA have looked more deeply into um, and actually presented on uh, at the request of Commissioner Price at the Dallas Behavioral Health Leadership Team meeting. So it's something that is very much on our radar at NIPA, right? Something we're very concerned about and aware of. I think that you are right about um, institutional racism, systemic racism, and the impact that it has on people. I think any time that someone is judged prematurely or uh, people make assumptions about them based on, you know, the color of their skin or, you know, these, these mm-hmm. external physical characteristics that rather than just them being allowed to be their authentic selves, you know, and walk through the world that way, mm-hmm. it has the potential for, for damage, you know, and mental health issues. And it seems to start at a young age. Uh, dealing with young African-American males, uh, pressures that they are exposed to in school, even mm-hmm. as far as first grade. Uh, so, I, you know, what, I don't know what we can do well other than what we do try to fight the race, racial mm-hmm. stress. But, uh, I mean, how, you know, you get frustrated because you, 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 you may notice something from a young, a young boy, first grade, mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and the question is, how can you help them cope with what you have had to cope with for years that you know is very harmful and stressful to their growth and development? Right. I think, first of all, I just would congratulate you on being aware enough to make that statement or to ask that question, you know, because so many people have been through, you know, that that growth uh, that you have, you know, and, and come across those difficulties in our society with systemic racism and things like that. And don't have the capacity, I think, to really understand the impact it had on them enough to assist their children with that, you know? Um, And so what I would say is to, you know, at the first sign that you see of someone struggling, um, 
whether it's a young African-American man and as, as young as first grade or even a little younger, uh, get them help. You know, it's nothing to be ashamed of to want to talk to someone and to learn coping skills um, that are healthy, you know, because so many things are unhealthy coping skills that we can turn to when we're faced with things like that. Um, substance use, for example. But if they learn healthy coping skills, um, anger management, um, you know, ways to reduce stress. And if they have, um, you know, loving families to come back to who accept them for who they are and who support them and listen to what they encountered every day, you know, and give them that kind of soft place to land, I think they have such a better chance of a positive trajectory in their lives than they would if they just try to struggle through and not get help. Uh, let me ask you something. Are there many African Americans that work with this particular organization that can deal with African American problems? Yes, absolutely. They are? Absolutely. Yeah. You have psychiatrists or psychologists that can uh, deal with this? We do. I'm, I don't know the demographic makeup of specifically the psychiatrist in our system, mm-hmm. um, but I know personally several case managers and several therapists um, who are African-American. And, you know, and certainly, you know, our goal is to meet people where they are. And if they want someone who is African-American to provide their services, we should be able to accommodate that. Yes. All right. We, we thank you, uh, Attorney Robinson. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, that closes the line, 972-647-1893. All righty. Who do we have here? Uh, Shay is on the line three. Shay? Shay, yeah. All right. Bring on. Good morning, Shay. Good morning. Good morning. You know, I find that... Um, uh, African American community is the most in denial about mental illness, mental health. Mm-hmm. We will, you know, if if you're working, our insurance pays for a certain amount of counseling sessions, but they will not, or we will not take advantage of it. Uh, and it's so sad. And I find also that. You know, mental illness a lot, it, it just doesn't come from, uh, uh, you know, people, uh, substance abuse. Sometimes this is in our DNA, and and we are the most in denial. And I have a friend that, for the most part, is just it's in their family. And through encouragement, you know, I even try to tell her, you know, you need to seek some counseling, how to deal with these issues. But they are, I don't need this, and I, we're all right. But I also find this, too. Uh, I don't know, I'm not sure if all grocery stores do, but I do find that uh, Clover will hire these people that are mentally challenged. But I find that I don't see any African Americans working if they're just they're, you know, they're, they're young, they may have Down syndrome, but it, it just appears to me that 
the uh, we are just in denial about our own mental health, about seeking health, health, uh, health. I think you brought out the point of people will say, well, and there's nothing wrong with this. This is what your belief system is. But God would handle Well, yeah, but God has provided these people to put these people in place for you. And uh, but it's 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 a it's it's, a, it's just a thin line. Uh, 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 do you have a, a, a question uh, for? Do you have a question for Miss Cunningham? Well, I just did ask her the question. Do you find that it is more in denial about uh, about the black community accepting and uh, a mental health than is it other communities in other cultural communities? Okay. I, I do think that you're right about that, and I think that there is a is a legacy of having to be strong through struggle, right? For the Africa, specifically for the African American community, um, I also think that there's a lot of um, you know community there, right? And people tend to this is true of um, the Latino community as well, but that people tend to stay inside to get their assistance, right? They they reach out to family members or to trusted others rather than going um, to, you know, more for more professional or institutional type help, you know? Um, and so, yes, it's available. I do know that, you know, as far as demographics of the, of the people that we serve, um, we serve most African-Americans. They're the highest percentage in our uh, demographic makeup of the people we assist. So there are people out there who are looking for the help and getting it, but I think you're right that there is that hesitancy there. Um, that has to do with the stigma, you know, and the that feeling of needing to be strong, you know, and, and do things on your own. And and part of that might come back to institutional or systemic racism as well, that can you trust a system that has harmed you before? But there's so much, you know, you know, you mentioned is it, it's in our DNA and there definitely is a genetic component to mental illness. And there's also generational trauma, you know, and things that carry over through the years that impacted, like we were talking about with Malcolm just before, mm -hmm. that there's, you know, generations prior have been impacted and the impact, is, the impact compounds and is transferred through generations. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's need in all communities. Um, and there's hesitancy in all communities, but we will help, you know, at NIPA, and we will help, and we will communicate, and we will connect with whomever, you know, needs us. Okay. I tell you what, we are running up against a break. You can reach us at 972-607-1893. We are up against a short break, and we'll be right back. Yeah, what's up? It's I'm gonna kick it with mine, y'all know. Here we go. All right, we are back. I'm ready for hour number two. And uh, we have with us Miss uh, Amy Cunningham. But we also want to invite you to have church with us in the morning 
at Heavenly Joy Church. Come be with us tomorrow morning. And uh, that's uh, Marion Barnett and uh, Senior and uh, Heavenly Joy Church. And we'll be there with you. Come be with us tomorrow morning. That's on Facebook, Facebook, Facebook. All righty. We're talking about health, people's health. Now, we we have hit a little bit so far on uh, physical health, but right now we're talking about mental health, mental health, something that's been taboo in our community to really even talk about. And I'm so proud that we're getting such good calls, so many, so many, that really we can go deal with this particular problem that's in our community. And believe me, it is a problem because every time I cut the news on now, some young people, these schools are going crazy. It used to be you get one or two a year, but now you're getting two or three a day right here in the Metroplex. Shootings and things that are going on that the only grown folk used to do. You got youngsters doing these things now. This so this uh, situation is desperate. We need to address them so far. All righty. Ms. Cunningham, are you there? I'm here. How, how long can you stay with us? Oh, as long as you want me. All right. We'll, <laughs> we'll just take it on to 9 o'clock. All righty? Okay. All righty. Okay. Who do we have, Pierre? A longtime listener on line three. All righty. Bring her home. Long-time listener, good morning. Good morning, Pastor, and thank you for bringing up this uh, particular subject. Um, I am in agreement with one of your callers, well, two of the callers, uh, but the one that said that these churches being shut down during mm-hmm. the week, okay, I think that plays the, a heavy role in the mental and physical well-being of, of people that need their church for other than just Sunday morning. The other was the lawyer that calls all the time and talks. Um, these young boys, if we don't get them help, just like you're talking about, I've been paying attention to news also and seeing these 14, 15-year-olds shooting each other. And, you know, it's getting more and more every day that we're, we're seeing this thing. Um, I may have mentioned it the last time I called in that I went to um, Friendship West Baptist Church a couple weeks ago I missed the service, I missed the singing, but I got there in time for them to be introducing Jade Mathis, who is Judge Mathis's daughter, mm-hmm. and she gave her testimony that at the age of 22, she was diagnosed with attention deficit disorder, mm-hmm. and throughout that course of her life, they were giving her medicines that were the wrong ones, etc., etc. So she's either has started this company or organization called All of Us uh, mm-hmm. Research or or she's involved with it. I'm not sure exactly which one it is. But, however, um, that, that organization is something to make sure of mental health illness and any other. She also said she had a thyroid issue. And she's, and she's trying to make sure that people get the right medications for whatever it is, is the problem. Uh, now, I don't want to make any assumptions, 
like this lady that you have on Miss Cunningham, but I'd like to know, is she a black woman uh, that's speaking on these things? Because one of the things that I'm noticing is that when people get involved with mental health of black people, just like the question was asked and you asked her, are there black doctors in her organization? Which, uh, it doesn't sound like she's saying there's, there's as many that they can get some or they can get a hold of them, et cetera, et cetera. These people that they hire in, as case managers for different things, sometimes those people, depending on their personality type or whatever situation they're in, they're not always in it for the well-being of the people. They're in it for the dollars. And, and it's just, it's really a shame. So this thing has got to be addressed. And I thank you for... Okay. I'll ask it for you. Uh, Ms. Cunningham, she want to know what ethnicity are you? I'm, I am white. Yes. Okay. All right. I, I, think, I think that's what she really wanted to know. Mm-hmm. Thank you for, for everything. You all have a good day. Oh, I'm sorry. Were you saying something? No. No. Oh, no. I was just no, going to say, you know, I am an ally. I am, you know, a, prof- a professional in diversity, equity, and inclusion. And yeah. so yeah. I am, well, I am you passionate sound, you sound about very, helping the community. Very, you sound very informed, and we need that regardless of what race the person is. So thank you very much. For that. All right, thank you very much. Thank you for that call. Thank All you, right. All righty. Okay. That clears the line. 972-647-1893. Who do we have here? Uh, David is on line one. David? Yeah. All righty. Good morning, David. Hello. I, I bring out the hit him again. I couldn't understand it. Yes, go right ahead. 23 years ago, I talked to you about a survey that came out that said 85% of the people born after 1970 was on mind-controlling drugs and all mentally ill. 45% of the toddlers, that's zero to five years old, was Mm -hmm. on mind-controlling drugs or mentally ill. That was 23 years ago. It's a crisis now. That child is 23 years old. I, I believe it or not, I remember that call. <laughs> you did say that. You did say that. And you, did not, you, did not, you did not address. Nobody addressed this 23 mm-hmm. years ago. It's a crisis now. Mm-hmm. It's, I'm looking, I'm here at the Washington looking at two people right now that's mentally ill. We got them walking all over the street right now. People, it's 12 different forms of anxiety. I done did over 100 shows on this in the last 20 years. When COVID-19 come, I told Robert Ashley in six months, watch how crazy these people be because they already were suffering from mental illness. This is a person born out of 1970. He's 52 years old now. Mm-hmm. And that's what, you, that's what we're dealing with. It's a crisis. Uh, Ms. Cunningham, let me ask you something. Do you think that pandemic added to the problems of our, our mental health? I do. Mm-hmm. Yes. I think we've talked about that isolation, you know, in the lockdown, the additional um, stress, you know, placed especially upon those of lower socioeconomic status. And I think that, you know, it was... There was fear, 
too, right? Especially at the beginning when we didn't know what was going on and everyone was just alone in their houses being, you know, afraid, afraid for their children, afraid for their elderly loved ones specifically, mm-hmm. you know, and it took its toll on us mentally. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it, it really has. It's t- it seemed like the, that thing was so broad. It's it's taking a toll on us economically, uh, physically. Mm-hmm. This thing was a lot worse, and and it seems like right now it's really not getting any better because the residual effects of what has happened. And they tell me some of these people that have caught the COVID nineteen. They're, they're messed up and can't, can't, can't seem to, uh, although they, the disease is gone, their minds and everything else is messed up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those long-term COVID effects. Yeah, go right ahead, Meatball. This was by design by the government, and I'm through. All right, thank you. Thank you for your call. That clears the line, 972-647-1893. Uh, bring me another one out. Yeah, we we have uh, Ain on uh, line three. Ain. 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 Yes. All right. Good morning, Ain. Yes, it's Ain. Ann. Good morning, Ann. So I was listening to Miss Cunningham. I have a daughter with epilepsy that's on medication. And mm-hmm. I'm noticing a lot of paranoia. I noticed mm-hmm. it during the uh, yes. pandemic, you know, being isolated, kind of... Um, Thought out a lot, but uh, my thing is, uh, she with her having her medical condition, she's like borderline. There's a lot that she can do, but then she hadn't been able to find work because of the epilepsy, and um, sometimes I feel that you know maybe there was more programs or something that could uh, you know kind of help people be more sociable or either just work or volunteer uh, with some type of services. Um, she's been offered to go to work at Goodwill, but she's already did that, and she doesn't want to work under those conditions, I guess. Mm. But uh, are there any other services out there that uh, she might could get into? Well, the first thing that comes to mind for me is supported employment which is something that some of our provider agencies offer. Um, So what I would do is just, you know, call NIPA and get her connected to services. Um, She can have an assessment at NIPA, where I work, the North Texas Behavioral Health Authority. And um, I can give those numbers again, if you would like. Yes, if you would. She's already been through. Go ahead. is on the Metro Care Services. And okay. they have set okay. her up with a Anna, some something called Bridges, uh, where a okay. lady calls and talks to her. But you know, mm-hmm. it's my thing is she wants to be more, you know, out in the public and, and do yeah. a little bit more. She doesn't read well, so she's been taking some courses in that. Um mm-hmm. it's that di- what is it, the dyslexic. That's the biggest problem there. But uh, I'm well, seeing Metro the paranoia. Well, Medicare is one of the provider agencies. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I'm just seeing the paranoia get worse. Mm-hmm. You know, every little mm-hmm. noise, the sound. She booby traps the rooms. And she swears everybody's trying to break in the house. Mm. So, 
Well, she's giving you an answer. Go ahead, Miss Cunningham. Well, it sounds like, well, MetroCare is one of the provider agencies within our system. So it sounds yes. like she's already connected there. Um, but but you all might need to, you know, you could ask her, your daughter, and her, the person who calls her each week, if you yes. might be able to join one of their sessions. And, you know, with the permission of both of them, I think you would be able to talk a little bit about your concerns, you know, and make sure that they're assessing her for any increase in symptoms or new symptoms or change in symptoms so that all of that can be addressed as part of her treatment. Okay. But do you think medication might be part of it, though? It might, but I would leave that since I don't know her, and you know I don't want to diagnose or attempt that. Um, just, just with the little that I know, so I would just uh, suggest that you talk to the therapist or case manager who's calling her, and then have their her psychiatrist, um, you know, take a look at the medications. You can also do that through her her physical doctor, her MD. Um, you know, and they can sometimes do assessments and make suggestions for mental health things if you're already uh, connected to a primary care physician. Yes, yeah. Well, we, yeah, we're already into all of that, but I guess maybe she needs a little bit more one-on-one uh, mm-hmm. therapy. Yes. And they should okay. be able to accommodate that, I would hope. Um, there also might be group therapy available that she could take part in, um, and that would you know, kind of address your concern about social interaction and those kinds yeah. of things and kind of getting out there and um, interacting with some more people. All right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Thank you. Yes, we thank you and thank you for your call. Here's the line 972 647 1893. Who do we have here? Malcolm Robinson is back. He had another question. All right. Come on, Barrister. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, mm hmm. I'd like to ask the same question on the other side of the coin. Mm-hmm. The racism that has existed in this country that mm-hmm. manifests itself in a way that affects the white community. Now, so I'm, I am a flip the coin from the African-American young man to the white young man who is suffering from the same symptoms but manifests itself differently. And it appears that they have a tendency to blame others for their situation mm-hmm. and take it out by going out and committing acts of violence. And an act of violence that they commit is sometimes on African American and Hispanic community. Now, my question is, as a white therapist, or uh, what can be done specifically in the white community so that these young men can find, or is there a symptom of, of mental illness that resulted from racism in the white community? that has created these these persons that go out and mass violence on people. All right. All right. 
Ms. Cunningham? interesting, and I certainly have, you know, personal opinions about a lot of that. Um, I think that what we ha- what in what is the problem in our society i think with men in general right is that there is a lot of pressure to care for to succeed to provide all of those things um you know i will take you know i will kind of take this from a a gender perspective as well too because you know the traditional gender roles that people have been um, brought up on in generations past are limiting for people right the men are limited to that certain role of provider Uh, women are often limited to that certain role of caregiver or homemaker you know those kinds of um, in my mind outdated not everybody listening might agree with that but um those roles and so i think anytime society thrusts us into a certain role or a certain uh, expectation that doesn't align with who we are as individuals and and that call we have to kind of silence or try to silence that call to authenticity um it it increases the likelihood of mental health issues. Um, why people, you know, lash out in the way that you are talking about and, and commit violent acts. I think with men in, in general, um, both African-American and white men, that anger and aggression is, is oftentimes the only socially acceptable emotion to express and so they might think that that's the only way they have of getting their point across and it's it's unfair and it's tragic for for them as individuals and for us as a society but i think it's our it's our current reality and something that we need to work against all right i tell you what uh uh attorney robinson can you hang on uh, I'm gonna take. I'm going to take a, a short break and come back because that was a very good deep question about certain things. I want to hear. All right, and you can reach us at nine seven two six four seven one eight nine three. We'll be right back. Yeah, what's up? It's I'm gonna kick it with mine, y'all know. All right, we are back on Church Information and Open Forum. I have an announcement here, a special invitation to the Oak Cliff community. It's a Get Connected Dallas Cardboard Project. All right, Dallas Invitational Alliance. It's going to be March 25th from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. South Oak Cliff High School, 3601 South Mercedes in Dallas, and uh, the job fair, STEM Village, food trucks. Oh, man, this is going to be big on uh, March 25th from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. So everybody, everybody, everyone is invited. Everyone is invited. Yes, yes, uh-huh. Come out. The arts and culture and the capital, different things are, that's going on out there. So that's March 25th, 10 a.m., 2 p.m. All righty. 
Okay. Uh, let's see. Miss mm-hmm. Cunningham, you still there? I'm here. Thanks. And uh, Attorney Robinson, uh, you still there? Yes. Okay, go right ahead. Okay, what I want to say is, and today is a great day to do this, mm-hmm. to observe what's going to happen at Waco sometime today. Yes, oh Lord, how much. To identify exactly what I'm talking about. Oh God. And what you may want to do, mm-hmm. I'm not going to tell you what to do. I would like for you to kind of, when you observe it, I presume you will, mental, are there mental illness issues? And it's not going to all be on males now. It's going to be a bunch of... Uh, oh, be, it's going to be plenty of females down there. Say It'll be plenty of females down there with that same attitude. Exactly. Uh, and... Uh, same amount of bigotry and hatred. Exactly. Yes. Uh-huh. And so, if you, when you observe that, there, there, I don't know how you're going to analyze that from the white community what, in terms of the mental illness. Because from my standpoint, the mental illness is equal or sometimes greater within the white community. And it's growing. Mm-hmm. And so, I don't know what can be done within the white community to let them know that rather than them thinking that their condition is a result of the growth and development of African Americans or Hispanics. And so therefore, they have to be have animosity they feel in that they're being replaced they feel like like uh, America needs to be great again there's something going on within the white community that's very dangerous and so as we observe the African American community and the pressures we, we need to observe the pressures in the white community in their reaction Mm-hmm. African-Americans stressing for parity. Mm-hmm. Very much so. Uh, Ms. Cunningham, what do you think about that? I, I think that he's right. I am trying, you know, since I'm here as a representative of NITFA, I'm trying to keep my personal, more political opinions out. Mm-hmm. Um, but I will say, I think that you're very right about a lot of uh, fear in those communities, right? The ones that have, we've, we've seen this kind of um, resurgence of vocal bigotry, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I agree that there's a lot of fear there, um, that their place in society is, is threatened, right? And that mm-hmm. they might be reacting to that fear. Well... Uh, do you believe that uh, uh, they are using their thoughts to define to define us when they are probably totally totally wrong about one with thinking where one would treat others if one was to get an even hand or superior? Uh, they 
Do you think their thoughts are correct? Do do I think their thoughts are correct about what? Could you repeat that? That we will treat them the same way they've treated us if we were to become uh, equal or superior to you. I see. I mean, personally, no. I don't think their thoughts are right. No. Well, see, here's the whole thing. Here's the whole thing. And you're so right. Uh, and uh, the the call is so right. Uh, so much is placed upon us because I noticed something. There are a lot of studies that have been done on us, but when it comes to white people, we can hardly ever get an answer on this type of study being on them. You understand what I'm saying? I think so. Mm-hmm. Well, now, when we're looking at this thing, there's a psychosis that's running on both sides of the the pendulum. And when we look at the things that are running on both sides of the pendulum, I think it can't be resolved till both sides uh, are cured. I don't care if a black man is become cured, uh, and once he gets to a certain age, a boy and everything, his life is in far more danger than a white child that age. Mm-hmm. We understand that? Yes. Mm-hmm. Go right ahead. Mm-hmm. But, but, but I think that we need, uh, I'd like you to kind of assess the growth of the angry white woman. Wow. <laughs> Uh, go right ahead, Miss Cunningham. Yeah, that's something that's very difficult for me to understand, right? Um, as a white woman, I don't, I don't connect, you know, with with that mentality personally. Um, but I think it goes back to you know that fear of losing um, losing privilege. You know, I think there's a lot of that. Um, you know, D'Angelo wrote a great book about it called White Fragility, you know, um, mm-hmm. and there's there's this fear that people are, you know, coming to try to take our privilege, right? And, or that even someone who is um, a DEI professional like me and work, you know, training people on cultural competence and, um, you know, cultural humility is asking, you know, that someone give up their privilege, right? And they cling to it. They feel like it's, it's um, at risk. So they, you know, dig in and, and grab tight to it. Um, but it's not something that people could give away if they wanted to because it's um, imparted on people by society, right? It's not something that we can... Um, as white people, we can say, oh, I'm going to reject that privilege, right? It's not our, that's not ours to control. It's something that society gives to us um, and not something that anybody can ask you to take away or that you would be able to give away if you wanted to, right? Um, I would give mine away in a heartbeat if, if that was something that was possible. 
But what you can do is utilize the privilege to assist other people who don't have it. And that's, you know, kind of where I live. Oh, okay. Uh, oh, the privilege is based on supremacy. That's where the rubber meets the road. Mm-hmm. If the privilege is based on supremacy, especially as it relates to African-Americans and Hispanics and other minorities, then when they feel that the supremacy is threatened, therefore the privilege is threatened. So they try to maintain their privacy. All We thank you for your call. Why don't you call? All righty. There's a, a good line, 972-647-1893. Who do you have next for you? Uh, Linda is on the line three. Linda. 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 All right. Bring on. Good morning, Linda. Okay, thank you. Pronounce my name. Yes, uh-huh. Go right ahead. I find that uh, since a lot of um, people are actually working from home now, being the word you used, I noticed you used a lot, was being isolated. Do you mm-hmm. find that uh, mental issues are rising from not from having to work from home? The majority, well, all day, you think about eight to ten hours a day, and not communicating with people around you. Since COVID, a lot of offices have closed with the forcing people to work from home. And I noticed in my own family that I'm noticing signs of anxiety, uh, being frustrated. And do you think that that contributes to them having to work from home and being isolated? Yes, I think absolutely that being you know, separated from our coworkers um, and not having that uh, that connection that's you know that sort of energetic connection that you get with people when you're in the same room um, is taking its toll on us from a mental health perspective. I think that um, you know we're communicating a lot via virtual, you know, virtually via Zoom or Microsoft Teams or platforms like that. Um, And I think we all knew, even before the pandemic, the potential for, you know, misreading things that um, are via text or via email, you know, those are open to misinterpretation. And now that we are, you know, communicating that way or you know, we hear people's voices, but we don't always see their faces on the screen, right? Um, it, whether or not someone has a camera on or if that's something that is required uh, by the, the place where people work. And so we're lacking that connection um, and that support that we get from other people at work. And yeah, and we've met you, like you said, we've mentioned a lot of times the negative impact of isolation. Right, and I'm glad that you brought that up, and I'm gonna, I'm going to hang up. You brought up a very good point, which I find myself doing a lot: uh, text interpretation. Sometimes mm-hmm. we read a text one time, and you know, we, I myself have is I have made a point to go back and read that text two or three times, so that mm-hmm. I can get a better understanding. Because sometimes we'll read that one line, and we'll take it to another level. 
At least I do. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so thank you, thank you very much for that information. All right. Mm-hmm. Take care. We thank you very much. All right. Nicholas Ryan, 972-647-1893. Who do we have, Pierre? Concerned citizen on the line one. All righty. Concerned citizen, good morning. Grand rising to you, Pastor Barnett, and to yeah. Miss Cunningham. Miss mm-hmm. Cunningham, thank you so much for coming to our community today, taking all the hard questions. But want to get back to the um, the kind of meat. Uh, I think we got some senior citizens that will probably need to know about the services as it relates to the financial hardship. Uh, mm-hmm. I had a friend that took his life uh, a couple of years ago mm-hmm. because he had mental health issues. He lost his job, he applied for a disability, and that whole process just kind of drove him to where he just couldn't take it. He couldn't pay his bills, he went back and forth with uh, trying to get some type of help. I mean, they gave him medication, but he still had to eat, he still had to feed himself, of course, and and uh, take care of his bills. So he just kind of lost it and blew his head, blew his brains out. <clears throat> I would like for you to speak to a lot of our uh, 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 the folks that cannot work at all, that are on mm-hmm. trying to get on disability, how hard that process is, and maybe you can 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 can, can maybe uh, help our seniors or someone that's going through this, and 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 help them get to a point to where they can feel some hope because that's part of it. If they're already dealing with the stress, and then them having not being able to work, find work or whatever, that's causing them you know, uh, stress to be able to, you know, that's, that's put on them that where they're having to be homeless and, and, and that type of thing. So can you speak to the yeah. fact that uh, uh, what can they do to speak to process stuff or who do they need to go to for their help? Absolutely. Thank you for that question. And I'm so sorry to hear about your friend. Um, so we have a, a team of... Uh, <coughs> benefit specialists, right? And so they, uh, we call them CBOs, and what they are tasked with is helping people identify um, and apply for the benefits that uh, that they qualify. So, so it could be Social Security income, Social Security disability income, Medicaid, Medicare, you know, everything that's out there as a benefit, those resources they can educate people about it and uh, help them through that application process. And it can be lengthy, right? So in the meantime, I would suggest, you know, getting connected to, uh, you know, services so that you can be made aware of all of the resources that are available to us. There are food banks. We at NIPA provide housing assistance. So like rental assistance, if people need that. Um, will, of course, like I mentioned before, um, provide services p- for people regardless of their ability to pay for those services. You know, so we understand that economic hardship is out there and it's real. We are, you know, we are tasked and our hearts lie with the most needy of our population, right? We understand that they need 
assistance of all kinds. And so we try to provide that as much as possible and connect them to it if it's something that we don't provide ourselves. So I would recommend calling that main number. And I had promised to give that again before, so I'll do it right now before I Mm -hmm. forget. And the main number uh, is 214-366-9407 or toll-free 877-653-6363. And you can get connected to those benefits specialists um, for assistance with that. And then um, also get connected to services uh, for you know case management, whatever might be necessary. Um, and connection with food banks, housing or rental assistance, those kinds of things so that we can help people kind of bridge that gap between uh, when they apply for government assistance or SSI and when they actually are awarded and start receiving it. Thank you so much. That's, All right. That's, that's, I think that helped a lot of people. Mm-hmm. I hope All right. so. All righty. Thank you. Thank you for your call. All right, Miss um, Cunningham, let me ask you something before we go out to our phone lines. What about you deal with women if they're on the streets? Mm-hmm. They, they mean they're out there at night and all meet all kind of people uh, and they're raped. Do y'all mm-hmm. deal with uh, problems? Like that to get them in? Are they hard to bring in? And what's what's going on with situations like yeah, that? Yeah, it depends on the person. Of course, being unhoused is extremely dangerous, mm-hmm. right, um, from a safety perspective. Mm-hmm. We work with uh, the shelters in the area. You know, there's Austin Street, all the different kinds, Dallas Life. Right. And so we definitely work with people getting them placed into those shelters. And then, um, you know, we can help with boarding home placement if people are willing to do that. We do, you know, we noticed it especially during COVID. Um, You know, first of all, during COVID, because of the social distancing requirements, the existing shelters really had to reduce the number of people who they were able to give, you know, give shelter to or give space to because all of the the beds had to be farther apart, you know, that kind of thing. So we worked uh, with the city to open, you know, and to staff um, an emergency shelter that was at the K. Bailey Convention Center. Mm -hmm. And so um, our staff and the staff of different provider agencies were there 24-7, you know, trying to help people um, get connected to services, you know, talking through any immediate psychiatric needs, but we absolutely work trying to get people into shelters and then, you know, getting them more long-term assistance. Because you hold right there. I'm up against a short break, and we'll be back and finish that call. And you can reach us at 972-647-1893. We'll be right back. Yeah, what's up? All right, we're back, and we're back on with Miss Amy Cunningham, Director of Clinical Invitation and Equity. I'm sorry, Innovation and Equity. Uh, Go right ahead, Miss Cunningham. You were dealing with the uh, 
the women that seems to have, uh, I know it's a whole lot harder on a woman seemingly to me mm. on the streets than it would be for a man, correct? I think, you know, from a safety perspective, that's likely true. Um, and definitely, you know, we work with whomever wants to be, uh, wants to, wants assistance with housing. We will assist with that. Um, mm-hmm. You know, whether it's, getting them shelter placement or something long-term, longer-term housing, like I mentioned before. Um, and I think, you know, with regard to the aftermath, I want to say, of a rape, you know, that, of course, will cause mental health concerns. Mm-hmm. Um, there is, a, I know of, a specific uh, group at Parkland that helps rape survivors. Mm -hmm. So what we would probably do, you know, if we were connected with someone who had been through that trauma, Mm -hmm. we would connect them, you know, with those services and for, for specific, specifically for that circumstance. And then of course, connect them with whatever other uh, resources, services, you know, housing, food banks, treatment, with regard to therapy and if they needed any medication, those kinds of things. Well, is there a lot? Of, is there enough beds, say, in Dallas County for those who are mentally ill out there, drugs uh, problem and different things? Uh, are there enough beds for to treat uh, the people that are out there? In in shelters and hospitals, I would say no. Um, that's something, you know, the, we are having a new uh, psychiatric hospital built, um, but it won't be ready for an, another couple of years. Mm-hmm. Uh, so definitely something, you know, the lack of space, you know, the lack of beds is something that is um, on our radar, on the city's radar. You know, it's something that we talk about at the, Dallas Behavioral Health Leadership Team meetings, um, and it's an issue definitely that we are trying to work together to solve. Oh, okay. Let's go back to our phone lines. Uh, who do you have next here, Pia? All right. We, we have someone on line one. She doesn't want to give her uh, her name, but uh, she's on line one. All right. Good morning, you're on KNON. Good morning, Pastor Burnett. Yes. Uh-huh. Good morning. Go right ahead. You can speak. Yes, uh huh. We can hear. We can hear you fine. Mm -hmm. All right. We listen to my husband. I listen to your program. We try to listen to it every weekend. And first of all, I want to thank you so much for the knowledge and the information that you give the community. It's so vital and it's so necessary. I'm calling this morning because I just happened to uh, get in on the program late. I know you're talking about. Uh, mental health issues. Um, there is one problem mm-hmm. that I kind of fell into. Mm-hmm. First of all, I will say that I am on a dialysis, and that is considered a disability. Mm-hmm. Okay? Yes. As a result of that, I was able to find out about a program. It's through, now it's been merged with the uh, Texas Workforce Program, mm-hmm. the commission, and the name of the program is called Vo- Vocational Rehabilitation Services. I'm going to say that one more time. Vocational Rehabilitation Services. Mm-hmm. It's through the Texas Workforce Commission. They have merged. The people there in that facility 
will help people who have disabilities to get back into the workforce. I am speaking on that because I have personally benefited from the program. I was on the program before COVID. They, but when I went to the program, I wasn't really sure how they were going to help me. Their main mission is to get people who are on some type of disability to help them get back into working because they feel that if they are working, they're going to be better, you know, just, it's better all the way around, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I have a number. I, I am working through the one in Arlington, Texas. The address for, again, let me say, Vocational Rehabilitation Services. The address in Arlington is 110 West Randall Mill Road, Suite 110. Again, that's 110 West Randall Mill Road, Suite 110. The telephone number there is 817-436-4167. But this is just Arlington. They have to have facilities. I know they have them in Fort Worth. They have it in Dallas. So I would Google vocational rehabilitation services under the Texas Workforce Commission. Now, let me tell you exactly what they have done for me. Okay, the first time I went through the process, they wanted, they said, well, do you want to go back to school? I said, yeah, I'll go back to school. Do you want to take, like, office or do you want to take, um, uh, let's see, what was the other thing, Excel or PowerPoint? Well, I had done those. I said, I want to do social media. They said, well, we're not sure, my boss is not sure if you're going to be able to do that. They gave me a proposal. I had to have so many, a certain criteria of things. Well, I did it. You know, I stayed up all night, and that morning I submitted at 8 o'clock. 10 o'clock she called me and said I had been approved. So mm-hmm. they allowed mm-hmm. me, okay, I went to UTA. They paid for my classes <laughs> because through the classes, I, it would help me have the education and the training and knowledge to get into the social media field. Okay, I went to the program. I They also, not only did they pay for my classes, sir, they also paid for me to have a computer to take the classes on and for the software. Mm-hmm. There are, this is, a lot of people don't know about this. Okay, and I'm in the program right now. I'm getting ready to go back to UTA and I'm taking another certification in advertising outreach specialist. Wonderful. That's my area. That, yeah. Now, that's a great thing, and you use the advantages and the things that are offered in our society for your better good. And I'm but proud to hear something like this. The thing I want to say about this, sir, is that they also work with people that have, you know, through their disability. If their disability happens to be like a mental health issue, they'll work with them also. Okay, because good. I also have, even though I do dialysis, I have mental health issues. I'm bipolar. They have they'll help me and that is not a problem for them. All right. As long as you can prove that you are being uh, uh, controlling your health issue, your mental health issue with a doctor or medication, that's what they look for. Okay. 
That's that's fantastic. You've given us a lot of information. We're just about out of time. Okay. I, I want to give I, a, a few more calls. My heart had, I had to reach out. I have the card in front of me. I'm reading for my card right now. Mm-hmm. And they are there, and they can help, and they have counselors and case uh, uh, people to help you. All right. All right. We certainly thank you. you Uh, We thank you. All right. I'd like to announce that. One thing about that that I think is really good, too, uh, those programs like the Texas Workforce Commission and uh, vocational rehabilitation is that they can help you if you are on Social Security income. uh, They can help determine, like, how many hours you can work without that impacting your assistance. Right. So that because some things that that people run the risk when they go back to work um, of making too much at their job and that impacting then their assistance. And so they will help you figure out, um, you know, how many hours are okay to work and what you can make essentially without without putting your uh, benefit in jeopardy. Oh, that's good. That's great. That's great. Let me make this announcement. Cesar Chavez Day of Celebration. That's Friday, March 31st. Visit us between 11 a.m. and 4 p.m. The North Texas Behavioral Health Authority will celebrate Cesar Chavez Day at the Dallas Farmers Market. We are inviting the public to visit us near the reserve restaurant to learn about available mental health and substance use and resources. So visit at the Dallas Farmers Market. That's at uh, 920 South Harwood Street here in Dallas. All right. That's Cesar Chavez. Day of Celebration. Friday, March 31st, beginning at 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. All righty, that's a big celebration now, great celebration. All righty. Yep, we'll have some presentations uh, from NITVA employees, really primarily focusing on our outreach efforts. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll be sharing some biographical information about Cesar Chavez Mm -hmm. and looking at how his core values align with the way we at NITVA approach our work every day. Right. Like service to others, sacrifice, um, a preference to help people most in need, nonviolence, mm-hmm. acceptance of all people, those mm-hmm. kinds of things. Um, our Dallas County Commissioner, Dr. Elba Garcia, mm-hmm. who is also vice chair of our board at NITBA, will be one of the speakers. And then around, uh, we think around 2.15, we'll start the networking portion. So anybody who's interested in receiving information about services or resources or other ways NITBA is able to help are welcome to join us. All righty. That's very good. That's Cesar Chavez, one of the great union leaders and different things. All right. Pierre, let's go back to our phone lines. Yeah, Uh, we... Uh, Beverly's on uh, line four. Beverly? Yeah. All righty. Bring on. Good morning, Beverly. Good morning. How you doing? Fine. How are you? I'm fabulous. You know, when it comes to us, it's a mental ill problem. But what about the people that put the oppression on us to make us have these problems? Why aren't they getting some kind of counseling? Why don't we hear from them? I feel uh, barrister. 
when he say what he say. We are going through this. It's not by choice. It's by what they put on us. And mm-hmm. then they want to call it mentally ill. I don't think it's a mental ill crisis when you open up the doors for everyone and not just certain ones. Mm-hmm. Am I right or wrong? Well, what about the person that put the stuff on you? To do another human being the way we've been treated, yes, there's a lot of mental illness over there. A lot of mental illness. And it's shown every day. Uh, Serial killers, you know, still those. uh, There are a lot of them work for the police departments. that, That they make it their duty to really get them they feel like they ought to be decorated when they kill them a young black African American male. There, yes, there. You're you're right. There are some. And then, and, and then, Pastor, it also comes from the government because they're the one who started this. We didn't start this, and now since we've been endured and can't handle it, now we got a mental problem. What do they think you? What do they expect you well, to have when you treat us like this? There's some things we can't deny. And we need to work on it, and that's what I feel like uh, this program is seemingly trying to do. It helps those who are mentally ill and who have been mistreated, ill-treated, and uh, and see what they can do. We know it's on both sides. Believe me, the other side is to, is a hundred times worse. Uh, Miss uh, Cunningham, uh, could you uh, speak to this particular question? I, yes, I'll do my best. So, you know, not long ago, racism was designated as a public health issue. And so, yes, ma'am. So it was, you know, it's, um, how do we, you know, I, I think about things and I don't know that I have an answer for it, but what would be the treatment for racists? You know, would they submit to treatment for it? You know, because it's, Part of the the way of getting better is realizing that there is something to address. And I think I said way earlier in the at the beginning of the program um, that you know people have to be engaged meaningfully in their treatment for it to work, right? So I'm not sure um, you know what the answer to that is, honestly, but. I do know that what we as mental health professionals need to do is not mistakenly uh, diagnose or misdiagnose people who are having understandable reactions to racism and bigotry and the, the trauma that that causes. You know, uh, repeated microaggressions can have the same impact on people as, you know, a a life-threatening traumatic experience, you know, and we need to recognize and give people the skills that they need to live healthily, you know, within the bounds of our society on one hand, and then in my mind also work to change those societal issues to make our our country, our city, Mm-mm. you know, our town, mm-hmm. places where everyone <clears throat> can thrive. Yes. But let me ask you something. You do drive, right? Yes. How do you feel when you're driving down the streets and the police pull up behind you? How do you feel? Anxious. 
You feel anxious? Look, yes, I think so. I, I, I understand, though, that my level of anxiety as a white woman is not going to likely come even close to someone who feels their life might be threatened because of a minor traffic violation or not having done anything wrong at all. Yeah, you really do. I tell you what, this has been a, a short two hours. I, I really have enjoyed you, and uh, we got to have you back on. We got to have you back oh, on. Excellent. All righty. Well, thank thank you for for coming on with us, and uh, we'll be back with you. I got to run. Time. It's my uh, I, yeah, thank you. I'm completely out of time. Coming next is Workers Beat, and they'll be here. And uh, may the Lord bless you and keep you. Bye-bye.